Now, this week, we're going to continue to look at Thanksgiving, and we're going to look at how Thanksgiving can be expressed through giving. We're going to be looking at that expression of Thanksgiving that was, that was in an offering to God for the construction of the temple found in 1 Chronicles chapter 29. Now, kind of the big idea that we're going to get from this message is that God is the creator and everything belongs to him. Believers have nothing to give God that isn't already his, so we should give willingly and freely with thanksgiving. Really, the, the action statement, the proposition statement, whatever you want to call it, is this, that God wants us to give willingly with a thankful heart. God wants us to give willingly with a thankful heart. We're going to look at that here in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, beginning in verse 10. And I'm going to read, go ahead and read this section. It's kind of a long section, but I want to read through it so we kind of have a little bit of a grasp of what we're looking at here this morning. 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10. Therefore, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you reign over all. In your hand is power and might. In your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and of your own we have given you. For we are aliens and pilgrims before you, as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. O Lord our God, all this abundance that we have prepared to build you a house for your holy name is from your hand, and all is all your own. I know also, my God, that you test the heart and have pleasure in uprightness. As for me and the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. And, and now the joy I have seen your people who are present here to offer willingly to you. O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers, keep this forever in the intent and the, of the thoughts of the heart of your people and fix their heart toward you. And give my son Solomon a loyal heart to keep your commandments and your testimonies and your statutes to do all these things and to build the temple for which I have made provision. Then David said to the assembly, now bless the Lord your God. So all the assembly blessed the Lord God of their fathers and bowed their heads and prostrated themselves before the Lord and the king. Now, our first point that we're going to look at this morning is in recognition of God. And this is really out of the, the song of David here in verses 10 through 15. I'm not going to take the time and reread those sections, uh, but we see that this is being done in recognition of God. Now, let's start with a little bit of context 
This is the last chapter of the book, and we're kind of coming into it in the middle of it. So let's get some context around uh, this, this section. Now, really, the greater context of this chapter starts back in chapter 22. And chapter 22 shows us David preparing to build the temple. He gathers stones. He gathers all the iron for nails and joints and hinges and all those other things. He gathers trees for wood. He begins gathering other things, some of the precious metals. And we see in chapter 22 that he begins to prepare Solomon for the construction of the temple. He explains to Solomon why he, he, David himself, can't build it, but that God had promised that Solomon, his son, would build the temple. Then in chapter 23, we see David beginning to create divisions within the Levites. He is setting them up in divisions. They're giving responsibilities out to them. In chapter 24, he, he gives division to the priests, to the high priests and other descendants of Aaron. Chapter 25, we see divisions of musicians. And in 26, we see similar divisions for gatekeepers of the temple and other duties within the temple. In chapter 27, though, we see it recorded the divisions of the military. And at the end of chapter 27, we see the leaders of the tribes and other state officials for Israel. David is kind of getting things in order and letting Solomon know where things stand. He has prepared things for the temple, even the division of the Levites and the priests and how the gates are to open. Then in chapter 28, the writer of 1 Chronicles gives us a more detailed account of David instructing Solomon on the beginning building of the temple. This brings us to chapter 29. In chapter 29, David has assembled in Jerusalem, apparently some of the leaders of the nation, or at least a majority of the people, and he presents Solomon. David then begins discussing the temple again and that to the people and tells the people that Solomon is going to need their help and support to get the temple built. David tells them that he has prepared things for this temple. And verse 2 of chapter 29 shows that he has been, been preparing things, and I believe in an official manner. He's using the state. He's using his authority as king to get the state to prepare the temple construction. Then in verses 3 through 5, David shows that not only were state funds used to prepare certain things, but he was giving of his own personal wealth as well. The next thing we see in this chapter is that David then asks the leaders, the officials whom he has gathered there, if they are willing to give to the temple construction. And we see their response. And then we read in verse 9, Then the people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced greatly. This brings us to chapter 10, or to, excuse me, to verse 10, and we see David's prayer and song. And, we have, and he has this long prayer starting in verse 10 and goes through verse 19. So let's look a little bit at David's prayer. Now, we're not going to reread verses 10 through 15 here. But the first five verses is where we see that David is beginning 
and showing his recognition to God and thanksgiving for what has been happening. Now in verses 10 and 11, we see that David is exalting God in worship. David is praising God in this verse, in this song, by describing his attributes. You can see the great psalmist of Israel at work in this section. David says, blessed are you, Lord God of Israel, our father. Now, we looked at that word blessed last week. That's a verbal expression of praise. Now, this verse says, O Lord God of Israel, our father. Now, the New King James gives us a sense that David is calling God Israel's father. And that's correct. That's not wrong but I don't think it makes the most sense in the context that we have here. I think it is more likely that what is being said is that he is saying that Yahweh, Jehovah, is the God of Israel, the father of the nation. So this would be referencing the patriarch Jacob. Back in Genesis 35, you'll remember that the Lord changed Jacob's name to Israel. And later on in our passage, in verse 18, David says something similar. He says, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, our fathers. There he is obviously referencing the patriarchs. So I believe here in verse 10, that is what David is doing here. He is, but the point of this is that he says that Jehovah is eternal. He says that Yahweh is eternal. We see that in the last section of this verse. Forever and ever, you, Jehovah, are the God of our Father. Then in verse 11, he continues with other attributes. And he ascribes greatness to God. This is the sense that God possesses an outstanding importance. That is, his eminence. He is great. He is eminent. And David continues... And then describes the power of God. This is a reference to his strength. It's the idea of God's physical strength and power. The next word is translated glory. And this has the sense of God's quality is magnificent. That he is splendid. And the next word that is used is similar, though it's used in a slightly different way. The next word that we have here in the New King James is victory. Now, the New King James isn't the only one to translate this word victory, but at least one other version translates this word as splendor. But the sense of this word is a state of high honor. He is, God is splendid to look upon. He is magnificent but he is also victorious. He has, uh, he has splendor. He is, has a state of high honor. And then the last attribute that David ascribes to God here is his majesty. This word has the sense of a quality of a person that inspires awe or reverence in the beholder. But this word can be about size or strength, power or authority. And this word could be used in in reference to God or people because we see the same word in the exact same sense being used 
to describe Solomon in verse 25, later in, on in this chapter. Now, David continues in the second half of verse 11, where he begins to recognize God as the creator. He says, for all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. All that is in heaven and earth is yours. He recognizes God as creator, and as creator, he therefore owns everything he created. And since God has created everything in the universe, in the heavens and on earth, then God owns everything. And David also ascribes to him his sovereignty. The word kingdom here is the idea of a domain that is ruled by a king or queen. Not necessarily a nation, just whatever dominion that the Lord has. And since the Lord has dominion over all creation, all kingdoms, all of creation is his kingdom, and he is the exalted head over everything because he is God, because he is the creator, he is king. In verse 12, David recognizes God as the one who gives. He recognizes God, God's giving and his beneficence. All things come from God. Riches and honor come from the Lord. Power and might and strength come from the Lord. Only through God's will is one made great or allowed to be made great. And all strength is given from the Lord. Then in verse 13, David switches to give thanks and praise. David recognizes in verse 14 that he and the children of Israel are nothing compared to the Lord. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer so willingly as this? For all things come from you and, for, and of your own we have given you. He says that he and the children of, of Israel are, are nothing compared to the Lord, that they have no standing when compared to the Lord because their standing only comes from the Lord. Everything that they have to give is already the Lord's. And he compares their giving to the Lord's. The Lord gives us all, all we have, and without the Lord, we have nothing. And we have nothing to give. Because God is the creator of all, he owns all. We don't actually own anything. We are only given stewardship of the Lord's property. But if we understand who the Lord is and what he has done for us, and if we are following him the way that we should, live the way that we should, we give back to him what he has given to us not for our good, but to express honor and glory and to express our thanks to him for what he has done. Because as David points out in verse 15, we are finite people on this planet. David says in verse 15, for we are all aliens and pilgrims before you. 
as were all our fathers. Our days on earth are as a shadow and without hope. Now this word hope at the end of verse 15 is the sense of having grounds for feeling hopeful about the future or specific events. Now as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we have hope. We have grounds for feeling hopeful about the future. While we may not be hopeful about an immediate or near future, while we are here in this life, during different circumstances in our life, we have an an eternal hope with Christ in his presence because of our salvation in Christ. Now, I think the main idea of what David is trying to get across in this statement in verse 15 is that life on this earth is fleeting. It's short. James chapter 4, verse 14 says something similar. James writes, For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. This is what David is saying in verse 15 God is infinite, God is eternal. But humanity is finite, and our life on this earth is short. In an earlier part of the book of James, we read, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its its flowers fall falls and its beautiful appearance perishes so the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits james 1 9 through 11 you get in that verse the sense that the reminder that life is short but also the sense that seeking riches in this life means nothing because it'll simply fade away like a flower or grass that is withered in the scorching heat of the sun Now, in an earlier part of our chapter here in 1 Chronicles, David and the people of Israel have given expensive gifts for the construction of the temple of God. Then David here offers thanks and praise and recognition of God. We bring our offerings and our gifts out of a heart of thanksgiving because we recognize who God is. As I was studying this, I was reminded of Jacob in Genesis. And one of the examples that came to mind was was Jacob and Jacob at Bethel. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob makes a, a vow to God. Now, by this time, that we get to in Genesis 28, Jacob has tricked his brother out of his birthright. He has tricked his father into receiving the blessing, and now he is on the run from his brother Esau. While on the run, he comes to this place that he later names Bethel. He camps out one night, and here, as I'm sure you remember, he has a dream of seeing a ladder between earth and heaven and angels going up and down, going up and down the ladder before God. God spoke to him, and in the end of that dream, he re- God reestablishes the covenant of Abraham and Isaac with Jacob. When Jacob wakes up, he makes a vow to return to that place. 
Now, Genesis 28, starting in verse 18, we read, Then Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put at his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. And he called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of that place of that city had been Luz previously. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I am going and give me bread to eat and clothing to put on so that I come back to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Jacob gives a vow that if God is truly going to be caring for him during this time, that he will come back to this place. And if he is able to return in peace to, to his father's house, to Isaac and to Esau, he would return to this spot and give an offering of thanks and tithe the blessings that the Lord has given to him. Well, after many years covering chapters 29 through 34... The account picks up in chapter 35. Now, God reminds Jacob of this vow that he made so that Jacob tells his family to put away all the little family idols of false gods and take off all the jewelry of these false gods. And they bury them and they journey back into the land of Canaan and to the place that becomes Bethel. And in verse 7 of Genesis 35, we read, And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, because there God appeared to him when he fled the house of his father. In Genesis 28, Jacob sees and recognizes God and vows to return to that spot and honor the Lord with an offering of thanksgiving by tithing his wealth there since the Lord had promised to bless him. Then many years later, after having been blessed by the Lord while working with Laban, working for Laban, and having a growing family, which all become the tribes of Israel, Jacob returns to Bethel and makes good on his vow. He sets up an altar and tithes his wealth. Jacob did this to recommit himself to serving the Lord who had blessed him and in giving thanks for how the Lord had blessed him. Another example I think that we have of this is in Acts chapter 4 with the early church. In Acts 4 and the beginning portion of chapter 5, we have an example of some of the early church life. I think that we have here is that the church recognizing God's work, the work of Christ, the apostles, and the understanding what the apostles are teaching, and in such a way that they, that they were, that those that were there that were more well-off, the more wealthy, sold parts of their possessions, part of their land or their houses, and brought the money, or a portion of the money at least, to the apostles. Now, why bring them to the apostles? Because the apostles are the envoys, the messengers, the representatives of Christ. So these individuals brought their proceeds out of gratitude and recognition of Jesus and God. That these proceeds, though, went to be distributed among the church that the, to those that had need. 
Now, why do I say that this is in recognition of God? Well, if we continue in to chapter 5, we see just a little bit of the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, Ananias and Sapphira were, were like those of more wealthy in the church. And they sold a piece of land, but they decided to lie and bring a smaller amount claiming that they, for what they received of the land, claiming that, that it was the total amount. And starting in verse 3 of Acts 5, we read, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of, of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your con own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard, the, who heard these things. There in verse 4, we really see the connection. When Peter says, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The offering wasn't being brought to the apostles for the sake of the apostles. They were being brought to God, and they were being redistributed by the apostles within the church. These, these funds were being brought as a gift to God to help God's people, and this should have been done out of a loyal heart, like the hearts of the people of Israel in 1 Chronicles 29. And this brings us to our next point. That giving comes from the heart. From the heart. And we see this in verses 16 through 20 of our section. From the heart. The first thing that we see is that, that we want to look at here is that giving should come cheerfully. It should come cheerfully from the heart. Now in verse 16, David has continued the theme of the song of verses 10 through 15 where he voices again, and even though there was an abundance of things brought in that had been brought in to, and prepared to build the temple of God, all these things had originated from God because God is creator and master of all. But we see in verse 17, and we're going to reference back to verse 9 as well, that how the David, David and the people reacted. But in verse 17, David moves in a slightly different direction. David, knowing that God looks at the heart more than the physical, says that God tests the heart and has pleasure in uprightness. Now, why does David know that God tests the heart and sees the heart over the physical? Because that's how God chose David out of all of his brothers to become king. He, he saw the heart of David. David says that God tests the heart and has pleasure in uprightness. Now, this word uprightness could be translated level, straight, or integrity. The sense of the word is a quality of conforming to a moral standard. David says that you have pleasure in uprightness. Then he goes on and says, As for me in the uprightness of my heart, I have willingly offered all these things. Another version says that in the integrity of my heart, I have offered all these things. David is saying that because of the integrity in his heart, that he is not doing this as an, 
He's not doing this for God as an external praise for his own glory, but for God without compulsion, without being forced to do this. That he has willingly offered these things for the temple to God. And if you are willing, willingly doing this, not out of compulsion, but offering these things voluntarily for God's glory, I have to believe David is doing this with joy, with a cheerful heart. David continues then, and he says that he also has joy as he has seen the people offer voluntarily, willingly, to give out of their own funds for the treasures. And how do we know that the people offered voluntarily? Well, David says so in verse 17. But if we back up to verse 9 of chapter 29, we read, Then the people rejoiced. The people rejoiced, for they had offered willingly, because with a loyal heart they had offered willingly to the Lord. And King David also rejoiced greatly. The people offered their own gold and silver and jewels and bronze, not because they had to, not because David commanded them to, but because, if we look back up in verse 5, David asked the people, who then is willing to consecrate himself this day to the Lord? And then starting in verse 6, we see the gifts that were brought by the people. Now, as from matter of from the heart and cheerfully from the heart, we have some direction in the New Testament on this. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul gives some direction, some examples and principles for giving. Now, I'm not going to tackle all of that. There's a lot in those chapters to tackle, but I want to bring out the first part of 2 Corinthians 8. So starting in verse 1, Paul writes, Moreover, brethren... We make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift of the fellowship of the ministry of the saints. And not, and not only as we'd hoped, but as they first gave themselves to the Lord, then to us by the will of God. You got an extra verse there. Did you notice what Paul was talking about concerning the churches of Macedonia? There in verse 2 that he says that they were in a great trial, though they, but they had an abundance of joy. And though they were in a great need, they gave in an abundance for fellow believers. Paul says in verse 3 that the Macedonian churches gave above their ability to really give. Because they're wanting to give for the collection of churches in Judea. And that they did it freely and willingly. In verse 4, he says that they were pleading with Paul, imploring him urgently that they would be able to give this gift of fellowship for ministering to these funds of fellow believers that they didn't know. These churches in Macedonia, places like Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, had joy, though they were in a time of affliction. 
And in this time of affliction, in this time of poverty, they gave more than what Paul really thought they would be able to give. You can't give willingly and so abundantly without joy, without a cheerful heart. Now, Paul, in the next chapter, talks about a cheerful giver. And in, verse, and in uh, chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Paul begins to talk about a cheerful giver. And we read this, But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's point in these verses is a heart issue. Everyone needs to decide for themselves how much they can or should give so that if it is done as a gift, as an act of worship, not under compulsion, not, un, not grudgingly, Now, we also see an example of this in Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 12. In Mark 12, uh, verses 41 through 44, there's the account of the widow with the two mites or the two pennies. Luke 21 also records this account. I'm sure you remember it. Jesus and his disciples are at the temple near where the, tr where the treasury offerings are being given, and they see people give. We read that many, are, many that were giving were rich and they put in a lot. Then we read that one poor widow came and threw in two mites, two pennies. And Jesus tells his disciples that this poor widow has not only given two pennies, but has given more to the treasury out of her poverty than all the rich who had been giving before that have been giving out of their abundance. This goes back to that heart issue. So neither Mark or Luke directly say so. I think we can safely say that the poor widow gave these two mites out of a heart of generosity and freely because she wanted to and quite possibly she gave joyfully. While these riches came and while well, these rich came and made sure that people saw how much they were putting in, into the treasury. Though these rich were giving and possibly voluntarily, they weren't giving necessarily in a sacrificial way. They gave from their abundance while the widow gave from her poverty. She really couldn't spare those two pennies, but she had designated, budgeted those pennies, if you will, for the temple treasury. They meant, that meant they were for God. So the widow sacrificed with her, with her offering while the rich got their reward by being seen that they were giving. Voluntarily giving of oneself or of one's riches, especially when giving them to or for God, has to come from a cheerful, thankful heart. Giving grudgingly, giving under compulsion, is not willingly, is not freely, is not voluntarily, and it certainly is not cheerful. It certainly doesn't cause joy in one's life or the life of another. 
Think about it. None of us like paying taxes, right? We work hard for our money. And we ask, why are you taking money out of our paycheck? Why we pay taxes? Because it's the law of the land. It's under compulsion. We don't necessarily do it willingly. And since we don't do it willingly, we do it grudgingly. And we do it with grumbling. Oh, they took so much out of my check again this week. Man, Medicare takes a lot out. Because how many of us have pleasant thoughts when I say the words tax or IRS? Those thoughts don't give us pleasant feelings. We don't get cheerful when we're paying our taxes or when we think about the IRS. Now, some people may have a heart attack when I say this, but I don't, I don't want you to give to the church if you're doing it under compulsion. If you feel that you have to give, then it's not an expression of worship. It's not an expression of worship from a thankful heart. Then it's not worth it. Don't get me wrong. Tithes and offerings support the church. And since it is going to the church, it is in essence supporting the work of Christ and therefore for the service of Christ and would be for the will and work of God. But it should be an act of worship from a devoted heart full of thankfulness to God. But hearts are fickle. Hearts are fickle. Back in 1 Chronicles 29, David finishes his prayer in verses 18 and 19. David, knowing that human hearts are fickle when it comes to sincerity and devotion to God, prays in verse 18 that the Lord would continue to work with his people so that their hearts would continually show devotion to God. And then in verse 19, David prays for Solomon as he is about to begin ruling as king. David prays that Solomon would receive a loyal heart to keep the Lord's commandments and statues and do the things that need to be done and that he builds the temple with the provisions that have been made. David knew well that the heart of a king is more fickle because it can become filled with pride and swayed by other things. David was praying that the people and that Solomon would continue this devotion and have a loyal heart for God. Now in verse 9, the people are described as having given freely because of their loyal heart. The same phrase is used in verse 19 as David prays for Solomon. The word loyal can also be translated as complete or undivided. It's the sense of entirely or entirety. Recently, I was reading in 2 Chronicles 25, and this, and this portion of the book recounts the reigns of Judah's kings. Chapter 25 of 2 Chronicles describes the reign of King Amaziah. Listen to this description in 2 Chronicles 25, 1 and 2. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. 
His mother's name was Jehoiadan of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, but not with a loyal heart. It's the same phrase in our passage. Now, in 2 Kings are the parallel passages describing these kings. And we find a repeated phrase in the description of these kings. And in 2 Kings 14 is the section, uh, the parallel passage of Amaziah. Verse 3 of that passage says, And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. The phrase, yet not like his father David, is repeated many times in the book of 2 Kings. What's my point? The point is, the heart can be fickle. We can start in such a devoted manner with thanksgiving. Yet if we don't continue to nurture that devoted heart, or we give in to sin, the devotion goes and we lose our thanksgiving. We become prideful and we don't do things with joy. We begin grumbling and complaining. Now this morning we've looked at an aspect of thanksgiving. Having a thankful heart is having a joyful heart. Being thankful aids in giving. And as Christians, we really understand that everything we have is already God's. And that he has created everything and has given to us what we have. Being ungrateful for what we have is just another level of pride. We need to remember that God is the creator, that God is the one who gave us what we have, that God is the one who gave us our job, that we are able to get our resources. Once we understand and remember that everything we have is from God, then we respond in worship and in thanksgiving, and this allows us to freely, voluntarily, joyfully give what we have for God's purposes. Now, this message is not about giving more to the church. This message this morning is not about a call for larger offerings. It's not about fleecing the sheep, okay? This message is just about reminding ourselves that we give out of our thanksgiving. That giving is an expression of thankfulness. And as Christians, we have a better understanding and a better reason for our thankfulness. Because we understand that God has given everything for us. That God has sent Christ as our Savior. And since we understand these things, then our natural reaction would be one of worship. With thanksgiving and expressing that some way in giving. I said at the beginning that the main idea is that God is the creator and everything belongs to him. And the believers have nothing to give God that isn't already his. And so we should willingly and freely give with thanksgiving. Why? Because God wants us to give willingly with a thankful heart. Let's close on a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this time.
that we're able to look at your word, to study this passage and to look at these other examples of giving out of thanksgiving. Help us to remember that we don't give because we have to. We give because we want to honor you. We want to glorify you. Whether that's giving of our time, whether that's giving of our funds and resources, whether that's giving in some other way. Lord, we do it because we want to worship you. We do it because we want to honor and glorify you. Because, Lord, without you, we have nothing. Because, Lord, without Christ, we have nothing. And we have no standing before you. So, Father, we are thankful for what you have given us. Help us to continue to nurture that thankful heart in each of us. And then when it's time for us to give as we have budgeted and, and decided and even spontaneously, Lord, help us to do it as an act of worship, not under compulsion, but as an act of worship out of thanksgiving because of what you have given to us and for what you have done for us. Father, we thank you and we pray these things in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.